Peter Turde has played a part in some of the formative moments in our modern cultural life, from an extra in the film Sleeping Dogs in the 70s to leading a blessing on the set of Lee Tamahori's latest The Convert. From seminal performing arts companies Theatre Corporate and Limbs in the 80s to Ihu Matau occupation recently. Of Naitaiki Tamaki, Nati Paora, Na Rodu Kitahi descent, Ture is also a curator, a sculptor, a comedian, and a staunch cultural and iwi advocate. He's been involved in a lot of major public art projects and more than a dozen feature films, many documentaries. But more than anything, he told me, he's dedicated to walking the land with people to tell stories. The most significant thing I'm working on at the moment is how to tell the history of Auckland Mm. for the population of Auckland. If we lived in Rome, we would know the history of Rome. If we lived in Delhi, we would know the history of Delhi. But the people of Auckland, a million and a half people in Auckland, probably more, and our history is still unknown to us and it's not accidental. It is part of the colonial mechanism of denying the history of land of this land so we don't have to feel the burden of um, of guilt or of a debt. Yeah, easier to forget. It has to be mm, paid. Mm. But with our treaty settlement processes, we're working through that, mm. and that hasn't ne- necessarily helped us understand our history. In many ways, it's made people retreat back into the notion of conquest, Aye. which is a historian's cheap shot. Um, and we need to liberate ourselves from that to really understand our history and to understand how our history is based in whakapapa, and if it's based in whakapapa, it's based in love. It's an extraordinary city, Tamaki Makoto, in terms of those volcanic cones, because I, I do remember a light bulb moment for myself as a Pākehā 20 years ago, being up on the top of Mangafo of Mount Eden and a group of us and hearing those stories of the land, you know, the trails around that, and realising the history there. It's, it's almost like that landscape lit up suddenly. It had meaning, uh, a, a, a deeper connection whether you were Māori or Pākehā. Is that what your work does? It's what I hope to do with my work. What I hope is is that the population of the city can know and love its land and the entire population can be responsible for um, giving it regard, giving it protection and um, appreciating its values. Mm. So how, how do you do that? Tell us a little bit about the walks that you would generally do with people. Generally... Um, what I've discovered is that if we start in the darkest hour and then bring mm. ourselves into the light of day uh, and experience the landscape in that context, experience the narratives that are framed around the landscapes, the, the ancient narratives uh, that were part of our oral culture, we just kind of get to see a little bit more. And this happened for me. Um, you know, personally, and and then I, you know, of course I wanted to share the experience, as it were, but what I found was <laughs> if I tell these stories with groups of people, people hear more than what I tell them. And I <laughs> yes. learn something every time from how other people perceive, respond, react, and, and have their own experience. I, I learn something every time, which is why I'm still um, doing it as often as I can with as many diverse groups as I can. And does it matter who it is? Is it, is it for any particular group, uh, Māori groups as well, or, or is it a way of introducing Pākehā and others to, to the land? 
all of that. It mm. doesn't really matter who the group is, but it, there is a deeper value in it for people who have chosen to make this land their home. And in terms of uh, Māori, in terms of iwi, in terms of those who descend from the land or from those ancient ancestors of the land, it's a different experience perhaps. It has the depth of reconstructing identities that have been fragmented by our colonial past and by our dispossession and by our generations uh, uh, of poverty. And so coming out of that back into our own consciousness. But also the disconnection is because of the redrafting of our oral histories by early colonizers who were generally missionaries or they were military um, colonizers and missionaries sanitize everything and the military ones exaggerate everything. (laughs) And so we have to bring ourselves back to a context of reality, which is why if we walk the land, a whole lot of things drop off the narratives we've been handed down and bring it back to the reality of our humanity in the landscape. Mm. I mean, you're also in, in, a, in a place where I know that you, you do a lot of, I guess we might call cultural safety work or cultural work and, and mehi of, of opening up spaces, of exhibitions, of film sets. You know, I think that the, the most recent Lee Tamahori film that's coming out soon, The Convert, you, you were there helping ease that. Is, is there ever a case for you as, as the work becomes more and more that, you know, the, the arts are looking as sort of liberal and left-leaning to, to, to look at almost brownwashed to kind of pay lip service in a way just to make themselves feel better? Uh, when I was younger and I was searching, you know, I didn't know who I was or anything like that. And, um, and I got to spend time with a, a lot of our tohunga and I got to understand the notion of tikanga and such like that. And then I suddenly found myself, if I was ever in any situation, and if nobody else stood up and, and observed tikanga, I would feel really, really bad for days afterwards, <laughs> and it would just go through my mind again and again. Yeah. And so I had to stand up. If no one else did, I had to stand up. And so with my minimal qualifications to... Uh, observe tikanga and such, I would stand and I would sort of justify it in myself to think that I'm holding the space within this. And I I notice in many uh, of those arenas, especially in arts and and many other things, the space I've held has now been um, occupied by a generation of empowered young Māori and Pākehā people who understand tikanga, who know what to do (laughs) and who know how to do it properly. And so that is so gratifying. But, yeah, for me, if I did not respond to the maintenance of our tikanga, I would suffer emotionally Mm. afterwards. Well, yeah, for a lot of us, Peter, we kind of go, what gives me the right to stand up? You're always standing up. Um, and, And something I just learnt, this week about your journey was uh, I understand you weren't aware for sure you were even Māori until your 30s. Legally I'm still a Pākehā according <laughs> to the laws of this land. Oh. Um, yeah, for me I felt like what right do I have not to stand? Um, and so it was coming from a slightly different place. It, it switched, you know, when I was younger I probably was a bit shy and stuff like that but then the overwhelming thing that came to me was the duty to stand and not remain silent. Yeah. I mean, I mean, not growing up on the marae, 
artists thrive on being sort of outsiders, I often think. There's a certain freedom there. And, you know, this distance of freedom, but having a little bit of critical distance, but also they're often bridging space. And to me, you're somebody who bridges things. You know, it's, it's sort of a dichotomy of sort of freedom, but responsibility, like an artist. I mean, do you see yourself when you're doing that work as, 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 that is a work of an artist? No, I see it as the work of the outsider. I am mm. still an outsider, even though I've found my family, my hapu, my iwi and such. I'm not necessarily welcomed or embraced in that context. I am still the outsider, and I'm destined to be the outsider, it would seem. And so there's something you can see when you're standing on the outside. There's some baggage you don't have of the personal, of the memory of, of grief, anger or resentment. And so being the outsider puts me in a, in a unique place at times in that I'm not um, having to uphold any agendas, but rather I'm searching for a way to be true to our tikanga and to the intention of our time and place. Yeah. Look, we've, we've called this new radio show we're on called Culture 101, and the word culture was used as, I don't know how you feel about that word, but with a little bit of issues with the word art sometimes. I mean, if I look at these arts practices, tamoko or raranga, the weaving, or the as the talking, the carving, the kapahaka, even rongoa, they're, they're not, they haven't been thought of often as fine arts or fine music, these kind of old European boxes that I guess we think of as with colonialisation. And a lot of those were practices even driven underground. Do you think there's healthy work going on now to sort of reframe the way we consider culture in, in Aotearoa then that's happening? Well, I'd like to acknowledge that you have called it Culture 101 rather than Arts 101 because arts, it has always carried with it a threshold of whether or not you have the right to call yourself an artist and such like that, whereas yeah. culture, uh, anybody can give an expression of culture. Of creativity, so, right, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and so it makes it much more open to people rather than people feeling, oh, I'm not really there yet, I'm not considered an artist or I'm not qualified as an artist. With culture, it makes it accessible to everybody. And then, of course, there were the things that weren't considered art. Um, when I was um, young ward of the state and I started carving, it wasn't considered... It was, well, I guess it was considered it as uh, a dying art and valued because of that, but it wasn't really considered an art in terms of what was proper art in those days. So you were a ward of the state, you said. So what, uh, you were adopted. Um, how did you come to be carving? What was the story there? I don't know. I just got inspired by <laughs> pictures I saw in a book by a visit to the Auckland Museum. Wow. I bought so a little set of chisels from George Quartz and I started carving any piece of wood around the house. Wow. And then um, one of my works found its way to Pinataiapa and so mm. he wanted to adopt me and train me when he found out I was a 10-year-old boy doing this work. Goodness. But the laws of the land were such that I, I couldn't avail myself of that opportunity. Well, back to what we were talking about in terms of culture, I guess when I talk about those forms, tamoko, or literally with tamoko, but they're harder to commodify, or at least they haven't been traditionally commodified, you know, and I think uh, you, you said something interesting in an interview recently that I loved, that, you know, the, the, the process maybe for Māori culture of where the arts or culture sits is a form of social capitalism. I'd love you to elaborate on that. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's not just Māori who have um, art forms that are less easy to commodify. All, all cultures have a lot of practices which are undervalued. And yet we're coming into a time when, I look at the, the rise of ceramics, that, that the earth arts or things that are more connected to the earth are coming back into play. But then there's a question of how one commodifies them, right? Yeah, well, one of the problems with the, our global economy is that as things become commodified, they become homogenized as well. And that's why there's a huge value in whatever we do to retain our uniqueness within the pursuit of our art forms. Tatau uh, tattooing has, is, is now a global phenomenon. Um, I remember the days, maybe a decade or two ago, when my tattooist or tamoko friends would make most of their money in the one month they spent in Ibiza, Spain or Amsterdam <laughs> and they'd come home and work the rest of the year for free. Whereas that has certainly shifted. Um, and now people come from around the world to come and get tattooed here in the context that they feel or that they know is anchored in its authenticity. Yeah. Can I shift back again in time a little bit to dance, back to the 1980s, to, to Lim, Lim's Dance Company, and then I remember Tayo Dance Theatre, the Maiman and places in Auckland, really a forerunners. I mean, the performing arts has professionalised a lot and changed. How did you get involved in dance in the first place? It was always in my mind. I was, I was working in the outback in Oz in a, a copper mine, and um, and I, I guess I just... I needed to come back to some place that was more holistic. And I came back to Aotearoa and I, and I started doing dance. I, I tried to do ballet, but I, oh, really? I couldn't find a teacher who would teach me. And so I, I did jazz ballet until I was um, impressive enough for a ballet teacher to take me on and um, I could do the ballet uh, bar. And I found that such a deep spiritual experience that it became my core grounding as a person and as an artist. I am surrounded, uh, and we all are, by such a wealth of um, potent and powerful dance uh, people, Mm. and it is inspiring, and I keep seeing things beyond what my own imagination could create. (laughs) Must have been exciting times. Um, did you did you tour with Limbs or uh, other companies? Yeah, and my my dance was pretty localized. I did I did one ballet season at the St James with the Adelaide Ballet, who were visiting oh. with a couple of uh, Russian defectors, and and that gave me an insight. But from then on, it was modern dance, and Limbs would have been the pin- pinnacle of that. But there were other smaller dance companies who. We toured um, maybe nationally and, and such like that. Uh, we'd get together with a group of people and we'd put all our energy into it for as long as we could sustain. And then I'd, I'd go off and I'd uh, work as a builder for a while or something like that and build my resources back up so I could have another you know, <laughs> period of just um, dedicating myself to dance. Yeah, well, I mean, there's been remarkable things, I guess, that have happened in that space, although I, I doubt for anyone it's easy to make a living, a crust as a dancer, or even as a filmmaker. I mean, um, you've got a long history with, with New Zealand filmmaking. It, it must be quite remarkable to see how that's changed, and I know you, you were with the Māori Screen Organisation for a bit of time. It's, it's grown immensely, has it not? Oh, huge. The first film I worked on, and I was only an extra, was on Sleeping Dogs. Oh, and, goodness uh, gracious, that's way back. 
that was the beginning uh, of that realm. And, um, you know, so for maybe for those first 10 years, it might be one film a year I'd, I'd, I'd get. And maybe there was only one film a year happening in those days. And so I would adapt to whatever any film wanted just so that I could work on film, whether it's building sets, whether it was acting, whether it was painting things, whether it was doing special effects or stunts. Um, I'd just do anything to get into film. Um, and then that evolved, you know, of course I started writing, I started, um, I was fortunate enough to have mentors like Jeff Murphy and Merita Mitter, and so they encouraged my writing, they encouraged me to start making my own films and such like that, and uh, so I, I explored it that way whenever I could. It, it strikes me talking to you, Peter, that often your work has been, you, you know, whilst you, you're the one that stands up often, as we say, but often within within the art forms you've been, you've always been part of a greater collective. Is is, is that a place you feel more comfortable? I mean, you know, you're not a Lita Mahori or a Witihe Mada. It's not that kind of brand of Māori artist. It's it's one that's more part of the binding, maybe? Oh, it sounds good. Um <laughs> <laughs> I guess what I haven't got compared to Lee and compared to Witty is I haven't got a singular focus, and yes. I'm often um, self-critical about that. Yeah. But then, in terms of the res- the way I respond to um, request to do things, I just keep learning something so different every time that I can't help myself. I keep saying to myself, "You've got to." You've got to be more like Lee or be more like Witty and, and, you know, focus on writing one thing or something like that. And that is still that is still a nagging thought with me that I do need to give focus but to you, something. But you've got to, someone needs to hold the space, right? And I think of the public art projects you've been involved in, you know, some of the major civic kind of public things that have gone on. It takes, it takes a tribe, as they say, right? It takes a, a village. Um, and you've got to hold it all together. Well, thank you for pointing that out because we have got several tribes now in Tamaki and we've got this <laughs> incredibly wonderful younger generation coming up who've anchored themselves in their deal, who are, you know, holding tikanga up as, as strongly as they can and they're doing a wonderful job of it. Um, you've, you've kind of pointed out to me that I probably can let some of that stuff go. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking to your ego, I, I know that you are currently a resident artist at the Corbin's Estate Arts Centre, have been for a while in Henderson. Can you tell us a little bit about Corbin's Estate? It'd be nice to give them a shout out. It's, it's in a, I guess, I think, uh, in fact, I think you were involved in a mehi to celebrate the centre being listed as a Category 1 historic place recently, right? Yeah, I definitely was. When I was six years old, my adoptive mother would take me there and um, while all the women were working in the vineyards and um, and all the children, we'd, we'd play in the vineyards and eat um, soggy cucumber sandwiches and things <laughs> like that. And then Waitakere City um, had the sense to buy it, I think, when Bob Harvey was mayor. Um, and Acid Corbin uh, as well. They were, they were supporters of making the old vineyard an art centre. And that's what it is today. There are 28 artists there. There's another, at least another dozen artists associated with it who come and work on projects. There's uh, two dance companies. Black Race rehearses there with Pacific Mamas have a, mm. a uh, centre there. Atamira Dance Theatre, Red Leap Theatre, mm. is, uh, works from there, as does Te Theatre. 
have recently just spent um, $3 million converting an old shed into a theatre, a, a really beautiful theatre. And so there's quite a lot of growth in, in, uh, in it at the moment. And then there, it is also part of the creative precinct of, uh, that includes three film studios, and so there's a lot of exchange between film production, the artists who can provide services of set painting, construction, model making, and such like that. And so it's a it's a very dynamic organism. Yeah. Uh, in terms of having artists, having things artists can go and do when they get broke working on films <laughs> and come back and, you know, pursue their projects and oh, stuff like and, that. Yeah, artists need space, right? And that in this kind of property market is one of the hardest things. That sounds like a wonderful community and a, and a wonderful thing to, to have thriving there. So kia ora to Bob Harvey and all of those that made that run. That's wonderful. I see that you've been working on some large gecko sculptures. or Mokomoko, is that the right term for a... Gecko. Yeah, it, it, moko moko is um, the gecko, and uh, the one I'm working on is a mokoreo, which is um, variously described as the Auckland green gecko, which looks surprisingly like the Wellington green gecko, and both of them have a yellow variant, and so I've done the yellow variant, and it was really part of a project I started on a few decades ago to... Um, create objects to educate children through playing on those objects ah. about our endangered or our rare species. And, and so this is one of those things. Well, Auckland Zoo, it's funny you mention that because I, I was thinking today that my first memory of sculpture... Period. The first, my first memory of sculpture was probably that giant dragon at the zoo that we all the, used to climb on in Auckland as children. The dragon is still there <laughs> still too. There. That's been refurbished. Yeah, and it's uh, interesting you put it that way. <laughs> Your first memory of sculpture, and perhaps the mukore is the same. It gives people a a consciousness of sculpture, and that it's something they're allowed to interact with. That was storyteller and cultural legend Peter Ture from Tamaki Makoto.